0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Am I an Iranian Agent Edition. I'm Shane Paris. Yes, yes, you are. Yes, I am. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I am. No, I'm not. I'm not. Not quite. Not yet. Not yet. We're gonna find out though this week. We have a lot to talk about you guys. It's been a very interesting week in security. Personally. For me. And others.
1: How is your personal security?
0: Well we're gonna, I feel like my personal security is very good and this week my wordplay and my object lesson are going to go to precisely that point. Um, we're gonna, we're gonna get to that, so. We it's should... the
1: All About Shane edition.
0: No. It is no. the All About Shane edition. No, oh, no, I'm joined, as always, by my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis. Hello, Tamara.
1: Hello, Shane. And Ben
0: Wittis. Hello, Ben. Hey. Yes. Um, I don't think any of you guys got approached by strange rogue foreign agents this week, but.
1: Not this week. There is still time. <laughs>
0: if they start listening to. <laughs> this to podcast... Ra- it's only Tuesday. Exactly. It's a matter of time before they figure out how to try and exploit all of our weaknesses. Uh, we're going to get to that. Uh, real quick, on the show this week, Iran tries to recruit an American journalist in its propaganda campaign. Who I wonder who it could be. <laughs> How the U.S. military overseas contingency operations fund works, and why does Congress want to make it bigger? And the DOD unveils its new law of war manual. Plus, are the North Koreans hacking your spin cycle? Um, we'll jump right in with wordplay. So that's my wordplay this week. Is a paper that I did not write. But an article that I did write in the Daily Beast about this uh, very, just, I, I don't even want to know what I would call it, this exchange with uh, some quasi-anonymous Iranian interlocutor who contacted me about two weeks ago over email purporting to represent something called the International Congress on 17,000 Iranian Terror Victims, that's the name of the conference. Does it have an acronym? Um, uh, it needs one. <laughs> it probably serious. has one in Persian. It probably has one in Persian, yeah. It's probably just much cooler and more elegant, but it's like, I mean, I, I, yeah, he was, uh, at first I thought this was probably spam. It actually addressed me as Sir Shane Harris, like I'd been knighted or something. You would have
1: been knighted, haven't you?
0: Well, we don't publicize it. I don't like to brag. Um,
1: <laughs> for, for your secret services. Just right. I mean, away. I don't know how the,
0: how the Iranians know this, <laughs> but yes. Um... Yeah, so they said we would like, we're having this conference and we would like to know if you would like to submit a paper. And, you know, and I was a little puzzled. And so I looked uh, on their website at the call for papers poster. And the Sears themes were going to explore things like um, the Zionist security threat to Iran. Uh, the U.S. conspiracy around Iran's nuclear program, Israeli attempts to undermine Iran—all of this. I mean, you get the picture. It was very. They're
1: all very important topics.
0: They're very important topics of which I am probably the least qualified person and likely <laughs> person to write. I mean, it was really just—I was just sort of stunned. I'm like, okay, now hold on a second. I mean, I, I get that. Like, I get the whole propaganda jamboree that this conference clearly was set out to be. But who was the the genius who decided? Yes, let's definitely reach out to an American reporter. Especially one who's written critically about Iran's cyber program. Not that, I mean, I've written critically about our own too, but, I mean, I think we were talking about this earlier tomorrow. It's like, did you just like slap the intern on this and say like, come up with a list of people we should try and enlist in this cockamamie idea to get this guy to write like a Zionist conspiracy? White paper? I mean, it was just bizarre. Well, I'm
1: imagining them sitting around the conference table planning the propaganda coup that this conference will be. And they're thinking (laughs) to themselves, how can we get credible Western voices to support our cockamamie conspiracy theories? I know, journalism is collapsing in the West. Journalists are starving. Let's offer one, a free trip to Iran, and maybe even some money.
0: Yeah. That, I think that seems likely. Right, but I would think if you were going to do that,
2: you would recruit somebody on a
0: topic of
2: their choice and you would make the thing look respectable only then to sandbag them with something
1: well, conspiracy theorist exactly. once if they get really there. you're far down the rabbit hole, you might not know what respectable looks like.
0: Well, so I asked them. So, so the exchange kind of went like this. At first it was like, I, what, who are you again? What is this? So I wrote back and I said, what exactly? Because of course I wrote back. Of course I'm going to write back and entertain these people's ideas for a second. Um, and I said, what would you imagine I would be good to write about? What do you think I should write about? And the first one was not so completely off the mark, I suppose. It was like, well, uh, how about writing about um, U.S. cyber operations uh, to undermine Iran's nuclear program, which I've written about. But then the other two were sort of, you know, U.S. hypocrisy on the Iranian nuclear program because Israel has a nuclear program and they were tendentious ideas. Um, and, you know, I suppose had I start, had I come back and said, well, no, I want to write a very objective analysis that's critical of all sides. I don't know. Would they have rejected it? Would they have edited it and twisted it around? Uh, I'm not sure. But I did go look at some of the other people who have contributed papers or given interviews to this, uh, this conference other notable, notable Americans, I think is maybe a loose term. One of them uh, is uh, a professor at a university in Florida who questions whether the Sandy Hook shootings ever happened. Uh, another is a guy who runs a blog called Truth Jihad, who claims that 9-11 was an inside job covered up by the media. And another is a man who ran for president uh, under a white supremacist party uh, who says that uh, Iran should be applauded for standing up against the Zionist conspiracy that controls all landscapes of American social and public life.
1: Wow, well, this is definitely the company you want to keep, Right?
0: right? I need to meet these people.
1: Yeah, and they I want need to objective journalism. journalism. Yeah.
0: yeah. I feel like I could lift them up. <laughs> well, maybe they could drag you down. <laughs> I mean, like, you've got to be out of your mind with this. So, um... How did you leave it with them? Well, so we kind of went back and forth, and then the subject of money came up. And I said, well, are you paying for these papers? And they said, well, how much would you want? And I said, well, it would all depend, I mean, on the length of the paper. And I'm trying to sort of draw this out. And they said, well, why don't you tell us how much that you think you'd want you give us your bid? <laughs> we just- and
1: now I'm having an Austin Powers vision one million dollars.
0: This is what I should have done, right? Take the money and run. Um, <clears throat> we left it there. It was at that point that I realized, okay, this is now... And at no point did I agree or disagree to do the paper. I just asked questions. But once it hit this phase, and they were, it was clear that they were offering to pay and to fund travel to Tehran, but they did not name a number. And then I just stopped and then wrote the story. So
2: did you uh, send them the
0: story? No, I haven't sent to that. I probably should, actually. Yeah. It
2: would be great to, um, to, to get
0: their response to yeah, the story. Yeah, you can do
1: an update with comment. Yeah. I'm actually just curious
0: to see if they even, if they even notice it. Because one of the things that I kind of walked away with this experience is that I think they're sort of living in a little bit of a bubble over there. And I don't think that they really, I don't think that they genuinely perceive the way that I would perceive this.
2: Do do you have a sense that they have any idea who you are? No,
0: no. I mean, only in the sense that they offered, they, they asked me to write something about um, cyber warfare operations. So maybe they read some of this, but this also struck me as like, well, how could you look at the things that I've written? They're not polemical. They're not, you know, they're certainly not anti-Israel. They're not anti anything. They're just it's just critical reporting. So no, and there was nothing that they said like based on your last book or based on this article that you wrote. And we should say by the way that the conference is sponsored by a number of government organizations including the Foreign Affairs Ministry and that the head of Iranian intelligence spoke at it last year and that several people who I interviewed for the story who have heard of this organization said is, is, in their view, uh, essentially a front for the intelligence ministry.
1: Wow. Well, I mean, maybe this just falls into the can't hurt to ask category. And it, it could even be, I mean, it's very hard to know with these authoritarian regimes, but oftentimes, the audience for these exercises is more domestic than international right and it could be that all they really wanted was a few Americans that they could stick in the front row of the audience you know for the news domestic news coverage of the event and sit, uh, in order to lend it legitimacy to the local audience
0: I think that's and that's sort of drawing a playbook out of. The, the, the nominal enemy that this Congress is actually meant to address. So the 17,000 Iranian terror victims, and the name is a reference to the Iranians that this group says were killed by the MEK.
1: The mujahideen e Correct. Ah, so they because Amer- there are Americans, including some notorious uh, American former politicians and current politicians who support the mujahideen e the idea is that you, Shane Harris, would be proof that some Americans see through the propaganda of the MEK.
0: I think that would at least be part of the design, yes. So, Tammy, you have been to Tehran
2: on, to a conference.
1: Sponsored by the Iranian government. Sponsored by the
2: Iranian government. To what extent, when when you did that, granted different government, different period of Iranian uh, history, did you feel like you were walking into, you know, the bubble that, that Shane describes? Well,
1: I wouldn't say, if, uh, th- it, look, it is a bubble, but what I really felt is that I was subjecting myself to becoming a piece of stage set, right, in, in a propaganda campaign in the sense that, okay, this was when Khatami was president. It, it was an era when there was a lot more exchange um, between American scholars and Iranian scholars in the sciences, and the social sciences, back and forth, and the Iranian government was not at that point running these notorious conferences on Holocaust denial that it's doing now. And I was one of three Americans that was invited to a, a conference on Gulf security in the spring of 2003, and I told those who invited me that I would write a paper explaining why the United States um, was likely to launch a war against Saddam Hussein in Iraq. And Mm -hmm. I I went and I explained the American perspective on Middle East security after 9-11 to this Iranian audience. So I felt like I was able to say exactly what I wanted to say without any interference. But, you know, when the international delegation visiting this conference was um, ushered in to meet uh, some senior regime figures, we three Americans were placed in the front row, and the cameras uh-huh. were brought in to film us meeting with the <laughs> Iranian regime. And, and you know, so yes, there was a trade off, I was able to be part of what I thought was a, a forthright intellectual exchange. But the price was that my face ended up on Iranian television, suggesting that Americans, you know, um, have no problem with this regime.
0: And when they and when you knew the camera was on, you, I'm just curious: did you, were you very conscious, like, don't make any facial movements, don't nod, don't do anything? I mean, once you're kind of like suddenly there. you Oh yeah,
1: yeah. You try and be stone faced, but your presence, from their perspective, your presence is
0: that doesn't the, that says it message. All. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: And of course, you can't control what they're going to say about you. Right. So now, but,
2: now, Shane, your absence says it all. It does say it all. That's
0: clearly. right. I'm clearly I'm
1: sure in the pocket crushed. of the MEK. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
0: And the Zionist conspiracy.
1: Well, if you're not recruited by one side, (coughs) chain, you must be recruited by the other.
0: Not with us. You're a Guinness. Wow. Okay. Uh, Ben, should we go to your... Oh, No, actually not tomorrow. We're going to go to your workplace next, I think.
1: Okay. OCO.
0: Okay, OCO.
1: Okay, OCO. Well, I I wanted to point you all to um, a new report by a couple of colleagues of mine at the Council on Foreign Relations, Janine Davidson and Emerson Brooking, have a piece that came out uh, yesterday about OCO, or the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund. Um, and it's, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, OCO is how the U.S. government has been funding its military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan ever since 9-11. Um, but what's interesting about OCO is that even though those wars have wound down, OCO is actually trending upward in terms of the size of its appropriation. And Congress is trying to give it even more money, much more money, in fact, than the administration has requested for it. Um, OCO be, is a very, very convenient device, both for the administration and for Congress, uh, because it is an emergency fund. It's a contingency fund. And so it operates outside the bounds of budget constraints. Um, and as a result, it what started out as emergency appropriations for counterterrorism and war fighting has become, in essence, a catch-all for things that either the administration or Congress or both just can't afford to fund through regular appropriations. Um, And we've talked a lot over the last weeks and months about our dysfunctional um, legislative process and the way it affects policymaking. OCO is, to my mind, a stellar and um, underappreciated example of this. Uh, and I think Janine and Emerson do a great job in this study of unpacking what is in OCO right now, how it came to be the monstrosity that it is today, and why Congress and the administration keep sustaining it. Instead of building these costs into the, the regular budget, because after all, we know that these counterterrorism operations are going to go on for a long, long time. And at some point, you know, these aren't emergencies anymore. These are just the way we live uh, and we should pay for them. So, um, but but OCO lets us pretend that we don't have to pay for them the way we pay for everything else.
0: So is this just a shell game? I mean, it's really just hiding the ball somewhere else. So we in can a all sense, feel better about it.
1: Yes, in a sense, it is at this point hiding hiding the ball somewhere else. And it's not just, by the way, military expenditures that are built into OCO now. State Department has stuff in OCO. I wouldn't be surprised if USAID has stuff. In OCO, it's just like point. the other budget. It's the other budget, yes, the one that you don't have to oversee in the same way, the one that isn't uh, subject to caps. But you know, this is what happens when government doesn't work. Bureaucracies create workarounds, and OCO is a beautiful workaround.
0: What's the constituency for killing this thing and do, undoing this? I mean, is there one? Or is this just? I mean, we're just slowly creeping towards the point where, yep, this is just how we fund wars and a lot of other things that we associate with wars now. Yeah.
1: Are there any budget hawks left? Because they would be the constituency.
0: <laughs> right. I do not know that there is anybody who's <laughs> taking up that banner. But,
1: you know, because of the way it's framed, if you want to shut down OCO, it looks like you're not supporting the troops.
0: And what, what
2: percentage of it now is actually supporting the troops, as opposed to all the other things that go into OCO?
1: Well, that's kind of hard to distinguish, um, because at this point, you know, you have military expenses built into OCO that are related maybe secondarily or tertiarily to ongoing operations. So say I'm using an armored personnel carrier in the field as we wind down our presence in Afghanistan. That. APC is going to age out and have to be replaced. So maybe the procurement costs for the new APC six years down the line are built into OCO now.
2: But that's stuff that <laughs> classically should be part of the regular military budget.
1: Uh, I, you know, at this point, I think it's, it's hard to justify, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, the other interesting thing is that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration have relied on OCO. OCO's peak was 2009, 2010, when the U.S. was still in Iraq and during the surge in Afghanistan. And it started to come down. In fact, there you know, there was even some talk about the Obama administration trying to phase it out. But then what happened this year is a, a sharp spike. So um, OCO may be with us permanently. This
0: is just the way we do it now.
1: This is just the way we do it now until we can fix our, our appropriations process.
2: OCO no longer OCOsional no yes
1: oh consistent oh Oh, contraire oh constant (laughs) oh
0: constant yes this could get ugly real fast it It already has (laughs) we should probably move on to your wordplay stop ourselves now ben uh, so, the DoD has a, has a, had a big week, big unveiling.
2: Well, so this is a very long time in the making, and, uh. This the, is like
0: people waiting for the next, like, Game of Thrones book, right? I,
2: well, it's about as long as a Game of Thrones book. Uh, the DoD this week, uh, released, uh, a 1204 page Law of War manual, and, uh, So, like, at a, at a basic level, this is a, a very important document. It's a, it's a document that lays out in, you know, applied operational terms, DOD's view of what the laws of war require in a variety of, uh, very applied operational contexts. And, um, and I think it is the first such document published by any military in the world. It's it's, it's entirely unclassified. Um, And it, you know, it lays out how the U.S. military regards its obligations. And also, it's it's a sort of a handbook, right? So, you know, how JAGs should interpret the laws of war in a variety of different circumstances. There is also a remarkable story behind it, which, um, so this is the, really the life's work of uh, a guy named Hayes Parks, who um, was for many years uh, the military's sort of chief law of war expert. And I I think it's probably fair to say he'd been working on this document for more than 20 years um, and um, delayed his retirement for it um a number of times and finally retired a few years ago uh with it as yet unreleased huh. and it has been sitting around while an interagency process tries to clear on it and tries to finish tried to finish it um and it became the subject of a a pretty significant interagency back and forth um that uh, had a lot of people scratching their heads, kind of wondering what happened to it.
0: Um, and Like it was uh, just lost in the process?
2: Well, it was never lost. There was always an ongoing process. There were people who thought it was ready and should be released. There were people who thought it was not yet ready for prime time and needed a lot more work. They, like a Hollywood studio it, Exactly. Over it's um The like Snowpiercer. They con- they convened <laughs>
1: Maybe it should have cooked a little longer. <laughs> they, they convened a
2: number of uh working groups to of inside experts and outside experts to go over drafts of it. I mean, it is 1200 pages long wow. and apparently some of it was much more well developed than other parts of it. Uh so apparently after uh, after quite a few years, I mean, I, I, we've been hearing that the Law of War Manual is almost ready for release for, it's gotta be five, six, seven years now. Um, it landed with a thud on people's desks yesterday, and the introduction to it actually gives some sense of the age of it. It says, The origins of this manual may be traced to work in the late 1980s to update Department of the Army Field Manual 2710, the Law of Land Warfare. Then in the mid-1990s, work began on an all-services Law of War manual to reflect the views of all DOD components. It was envisioned that the manual would provide not only black-letter rules but also discussion, examples of state practice and references to past manuals, treatises and other documents to provide explanation, clarification and elaboration. The present manual has sought to realize that vision and thus falls within the tradition of the 1914 War Department Manual as well as the 1989 and 97 commander's handbook on the law of naval operations. So
1: it, <laughs> Can I ask you, though, is this really a manual in any meaningful sense, or is this a sort of catechism? Like, who is the intended user of this document? Is this just for JAGS, or is a captain of an infantry unit supposed to have memorized this thing and know what he's allowed to do and not do on no, the battlefield? No, it is,
2: it is certainly not for the captain of the infantry unit. So the captain of the infantry unit gets, you know, field manuals, um, of, you know, what, that are much briefer and what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? The JAGs, uh, this will be, you know, a big part of the mother's milk that they drink in. And when they are doing legal review of proposed operations, this will be a big piece of, you know, their inputs into uh, in, in, into those sorts of legal reviews. So I think the audience is principally JAGS, um, and I doubt... And I think the other value of it that is really important is for customary international law purposes that... You to know, say that
1: they have a manual.
2: Need. Well, and, and also this is a formal statement of, you know, what the United States regards as its obligations under the laws of war, and that has big implications for a pineo and sort of you know other uh, you know a- any anything in which another country can kind of look at US documents and practice and say here's what we can say about US practice there's now this major statement with the words department of defense law of war manual that kind of lays stuff out and and Do that other
1: countries have a, lo- a law of war manual like this?
2: I don't believe so. And that's part of what makes it a substantial and important document.
0: And is it, is I mean is it written like, I mean, like we think of like a manual like for your car or an appliance like you can go to this huge book and say, "Okay, I find myself contemplating whether or not I can, you know, m- move this detachment into this area under the following conditions." I mean, is it sort of that <clears throat> technical and user-friendly or is it more laying out Case studies and theory and this kind of thing.
2: Well, okay. So, chapter one is general background. He um, was th- a great general, too. Wasn't cha- it? <laughs> chapter two is principles. The famous
1: civil war general background.
2: Uh, goddamn colonel prologue. <laughs> chapter three is application of the laws of war. Um, and these seem... And then you get into these incredibly granular uh, topics. So mm. chapter four is classes of persons, and wow, they include okay. you know, armed forces of a state, levée en masse. Okay, uh, so now
1: we get to the, the political part of the policy question. Having generated this document, presumably part of what took time to litigate in finalizing this text was the implications of this text for Actions that the U.S. government has taken over the last ten plus years in the name of counterterrorism, and how they would look in light of these guidelines, right? So, what do we know about, you know, what this? Would we be able to do Guantanamo under this manual? Would we be able to do targeted killings under this question. manual?
2: So there are. So first of all, I have not read the manual yet. Um, there are is a large section, uh, a whole section on. Uh, detention. uh, um, And there is an additional section on prisoners of war. So, you know, one of the things it does is it incorporates a large body of experience and law as developed um, in practice over time. So the
1: idea is we'll never fly by the seat of our pants on this stuff again. Is that the promise of this document? I
2: don't think that's the specific promise because there certainly are issues that come up for the first time that you've never dealt with before, but it is an attempt to gather very large volumes of practice and experience across the range of laws of war. You know, So if you're contemplating use of a laser weapon, which, by the way, is banned in international law. Oh, really? You can go you to... you
1: those little kids in Rome who are selling those lasers or violating blin- international law? Blinding
2: laser weapons are banned under international law.
1: Wait,
0: aren't we developing a laser weapon to shoot down drones? I've seen uh, yeah,
2: but that's not to use against people. Oh. oh, oh. Um, so you can blind a drone. See, it now the lies. manual cleared
1: it up. There exactly.
0: you go. Of soul. So you could go <laughs> to the weapons
2: chapter... Um and then you could go to the laser weapons section of the you know and look up what I'm the law is. I'm loving this manual. So there you go, uh, Hayes Parks. You have a reader
0: in Shane Harris. Yeah, and you know I think I remember Hayes. I, I interviewed him like eight years ago when I was writing uh, a piece about whether or not crazy idea uh, people in the international law community were going to start challenging the legality of drone strikes. Big chapter on cyber operations. Oh really? By the way. Yeah. Okay, I'm definitely going to check this um, out. So it's it's well, congratulations it's, Hayes. That's a life's work right there. It's a
2: it's a very substantial document, and I think it will have big impact in a lot of areas. And it's been a lot of work to bring it. A lot of people giving a lot of work to bring it
0: bring it to that's really cool to publication. Yeah, that's a big big day for them. Okay, well congrats uh, and thanks. So we're going to move on to object lesson now. Here's my object. I brought a picture of it because. It's a very large object. It is actually this stainless steel washer-dryer.
1: That's a pretty space-age washer-dryer yeah, combo it, you got there. It
0: looks like
2: a teleporter.
1: huh. It does. And, and it I, d- if
2: you put one somebody in one side of it and you press the button,
0: do they show up in the other oh, side? Oh, yes. Now, we stack ours at home, so like they I basically see. go Have up. Have you tried it with up. the cat? Oh, sure. Oh, they love it. <laughs> but the cats <laughs> actually love this thing. It's crazy. Um, but I bring this in here not because of all the things that this washer-dryer can do, of which there are a frightening number... And it comes with its own, like law of war manual. Um, but for the thing that this thing can specifically not do, a feature that we were offered and specifically declined, Wi-Fi.
1: Why would you want your washer to be on Wi-Fi?
0: Exactly. I mean we just it was what not what is even... the
1: argument for putting your washer I so, on Wi-Fi? I'm not
0: even really sure because we immediately heard this and we just just Joe and I just said, no, forget it. We are not getting Wi-Fi. We are not creating the ability to hack and to our spin cycle. See,
2: this was your opportunity, Shane, to to be part of the Internet of Things. Yeah, and it you, was. You saw the future. It sure was. And you passed and it I up. I said, no
0: thanks. <laughs> no Internet of Things for me. I'm really like, I mean, we we. And went, see,
1: I'm still, I'm mystified by the appeal of this. Is this so your washing machine can order itself more detergent? Or is this so you can yeah. turn it on remotely? In I which case it's... how do the clothes get into the washing machine?
0: Well yeah, so there's there's the remote turn on thing, which makes no sense I think because there's a time run. I think what it's actually about, nominally for the purposes of the consumer, is Gathering data on your usage and trying to make it more efficient, right? Because
2: that's what we all need. We need, we need like Whirlpool to have data on our. That's what it's really about. Like,
0: let's be honest here. It's a way for like people to send Whirlpool information about your aggregate
1: statistics on how often you wash your socks. Sure.
0: I mean, it's like you know, I I, I, I can't. And then you
2: start getting getting email like Shane, you haven't washed your socks recently. Yes, we
0: noticed you're using a little too hot water for that fabric. And then I would just, you know, yell at my husband and be like, What's wrong with you? Why are you ruining our clothes? Whirlpool so says you're ruining the nanny our clothes.
1: State. You're saying we need to worry about the nanny appliance company.
0: Totally. I think we need to worry about like that. And I think that, you know, it just I I I just feel like I could not understand what the practical benefit was of adding this feature to an appliance that by the way fills up with water and like runs on like superheated air. <laughs> But I could see all of the risks and the downsides. So this is the reason why we didn't get Nest, also, which is the uh, Wi-Fi enabled.
1: Thermostat House and all this. alarm. Yeah, because yeah, and also well,
0: here's another thing. is why we didn't get Nest, but also why we, we didn't want this one. If you were a hacker and wanted to get into the appliances, and you notice that you haven't washed your clothes in, you know, two three weeks, you might assume I'm not at home, and you might then you know. Have and if you were an you Iranian
2: a government agency that's trying to force Shane Harris to come be a propaganda tool, and you could make his washing machine explode remotely from Tehran so that he really needs that extra, you know, 3000 bucks that you might be then offering him for a paper, oh. you, would, oh. you would go for Shane's washing machine.
0: There you go. Very, that's, how, that's, that's, that's how you it. do it. That's how you do it. Well, I'm glad we figured that out. And thank you, Whirlpool, for my lovely washer-dryer, but... With no Wi-Fi. With no Wi-Fi. And don't buy things from Home Depot. That's another thing I'm going to say. That's another subject. Home Depot needs to, yeah. Yeah. Get up with some... Get they need to get hacked. Not really. They've already <laughs> been hacked. They've already been hacked. <laughs> yeah. anyway. Um. Tomorrow, would you like to show your object? Uh, ben, would you like to show your object? I
2: would love to. I have an object from straight out of Little Shop of Horrors uh, today... Um I have been filling my uh bright new office with plants and I decided I was going to have a habanero plant in my office. And so I bought this tiny little uh adorable habanero plant and it has been drinking water voraciously. That's like and, a tiny habanero. Well, line. it was when that's I got arrow it. Arrow it was line. like this. Yeah, that's getting really big. And it's getting bigger like, and bigger and scary. bigger. Little and, shop of horrors. And, uh-huh. and it's growing. And if you don't give it water every day, it keels over. Um, and then you pour more water in and it sucks it right up. And it, it, yeah, pretty it's Pretty soon, easy. it is going to devour us all. And so I just want to alert you all to a brand new security threat my habanero plant, which is, which is coming to get your mama.
0: I think your object might have to be, like, some herbicide. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, uh, I don't know if I'm going to take herbicide to the habanero plant, but I am going to ban this dangerous weapon, um, biological weapon, from the uh, rational security garden, which you might recall from our show a few months ago, uh, we've ripped out the lawn in the front of our yard, and uh, and we've been in the process of making sure we kill every last grass seed in the front yard.
0: Your object is destruction this week, I
1: think. I, <laughs> I am a mistress of destruction, and <laughs> beginning next week, I'm going to be planting in the Rational Security Garden. Now, you listeners have been slow to recommend National Security-related plants for the garden, but... This is your last chance before I start planting, so tweet your suggestions to us at R-A-T-L security. Uh, we can take uh, Digitalis, right? Ooh, Nightshade. Yeah.
0: Nightshade would yeah. be a good one.
1: And some good deterrent plants. Like
0: poison ivy, poison poison yeah. sumac.
1: Yeah, nettles.
0: Yeah, stinging nettles, although you can make those into a lovely soup. Really? Yeah, you can like, just
1: denettle them. Wow. wow. I don't know.
0: Feed it to your Iranians Patriots.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> um <so laughs> but not
2: my habanero plant?
1: No, not your habanero plant. That thing plant. is dangerous. We'll just we'll put that right in front of the door and uh, and when the inevitable um, evangelists come by, they can be devoured. They can be yes. devoured.
0: <laughs> when the Jehovah's Witnesses in the MEK show up on your front doorstep, they will be met with this with terrifying
1: Hot pepper. <clears throat> yeah. That will burn your eyes. Audrey 3, the
0: hell <laughs> of Okay, that's it for this week's show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to all of our other great shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. You can follow us at, as Tamara said, R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast, wherever you subscribe, please leave a rating and leave comments. We really, really appreciate it. The editor of the podcast is Jen Howell. Our music this week is performed by Ali Khamenei and the O Coasters. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. like that? Yeah. It's a very soulful <laughs> band they put together. No, of course, of course, you're too smart for that. Our music is performed, as always, by Sophia Yan. On behalf of my friends Tamara kaufman Wittis and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.